Hello, my name is Marvin Hemeyer. Today is, uh, let's see here, April 13, 2004. Oftentimes, the problem is that we want to look at things and we look at them too closely. I am making this tape. I thought I should make it a year ago. Made part of it. Didn't like it. In high school, we teach history completely wrong. Well, this happened on this date, and this is the result. Really didn't think it'd make any difference if I did make it, but a good friend of mine said I should make it. He said I should sit down in front of a videotape machine and do it, but you're just going to have to take my word that this is Marv Hemeyer, serial number 503-689-471. And uh, it, I'm living in Grand Lake, Colorado. Well, something happened the day before that caused that event to happen. So you have to look at the broader picture, because nothing happens because of one event. And this tape is about my life since I came up here to Grand Lake in 1991. I moved up here in the fall of 1991 to kind of take a six-month vacation. Had a guy and his wife. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, The Machine. I think you need to start off with the late 1980s. That was the beginning of a severe recession. The savings and loan industry has collapsed. Everyday Americans, many of them senior citizens, lost millions of dollars. It is the largest financial scandal in the history of the world. A lot of businesses got caught up in these bankruptcies. I think that every American citizen has every right in the world to be disturbed and shocked. Two banks, the Bank of Granby and Bank of Winter Park, and they had a lot of really bad, outstanding loans. The FDIC performs a number of missions. And the banks were taken over by the FDIC. Uh, it handles the failures of all types of banks. Well, they came in, seized different properties, so they would have these auctions that they'd auction off these foreclosed properties. Well, one of these properties was what was to become Marv Hemeyer's. It was an old concrete plant, and the guy had gone bankrupt and uh, had two acres of ground. He went to the auction, and he looked at his property. Anyway, this one finally came up for bid, and uh, I got a bid for 40 and this other guy, I couldn't believe it, jumped up on his chair. That's how I knew where he was. Of course, he bid 45000 and of course, I bid 50000 Cody Docheff, who was the owner of the property originally, he went and he was trying to buy as much of the property back as he could. He didn't have enough money to buy the property, so there was a little bit of conflict there. Kind of hard feelings. I mean, this guy's just a fucking asshole. He bought the shop that I used to own from the FDIC. Just giving me a tongue lashing for about 10 minutes. I didn't have no problem with that. I mean, he's Mr. Napoleon all the way in the worst way. The guy just couldn't deal with the fact that he was little. He wanted everything his way. If it didn't go his way, you was his enemy or something. So Marv buys this property. Started putting on mufflers and advertising and everything. You know, he's very talented welder, mechanic. He was into rebuilding old classic cars, and he opens up a muffler shop. Figured I was going to do a good, good thing. Anyway... 
I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, in 92, I was cleaning the property up. Marv Hemeyer was a good friend of mine. I owned Ian's Mountain Bakery in Granby. I had it for 18 years. He'd come in every day for my soup and bread. I made the best French bread you ever had. A little butter on it, it was even better. And Marv loved my clam chowder. He liked my green chili, but he loved my clam chowder. I remember the first time I ever took Marv fishing. I took Marv salmon snagging. I had this little boat, and I don't believe Marv ever caught so many fish. And after that salmon snagging trip, he was wanting to do stuff with me. I owned the snowmobile dealership from 1997 to 2003. People that have never snowmobiled, they get them stuck all the time. It takes a lot to get a snowmobile unstuck. I would hear stories of all these renters coming back down and saying that somebody helped them. And I said, well, who was it? So I can thank them. And it was Marv a lot of times. Snowmobiling, you know, you meet a lot of really cool people. And he kept our group together, the Thursday crew, as we called it. Well, we were part of the Thursday crowd every Thursday in Grand Lake. We were the old Thursday riders for years. That's what we did. <laughs> when we first moved here, he kind of tried to date my mom, actually. He'd work on the muffler on her car and stuff. Just a regular old hard-working dude, you know? Very self-sufficient. He had a good sense of humor. And he hung around with people that would make you laugh. If you're at breakfast or just walked in, he'd be the one to pay your tab. He was tall. He was a good-looking guy. He was like my older brother. He was fun to be around all the time. Great energy. He's just a good guy. He's a great guy. Life was pretty good and just was going along happy. And in 98, I believe it was, this Dochef guy... He's, he's going to try to buy the property next door to the west of me. When we bought this 22 acres down here, and we went to the town board to see if we could get a uh, permit uh, for a ready-mix plant, batch plant. He mixes concrete. That's his business. Well, under the zoning regulations, that requires a special use permit, and you have to go through a process. I didn't want no friggin' concrete plant next to me especially upwind of me. I mean, I was going to be right in the uh, dust tail of this whole operation. We went through town board meetings about a year and a half or two years, whatever. I covered every single meeting all the way up to the end. And Marv showed up and made lots of comments. He rallied the neighborhood to come out against it initially. The first very meeting, he had a bunch of uh, little children sitting out there in front of him. And... Uh, the dust, the noise, and this, the pollution, and all of that, you know. He would stand up and, you know, give speeches. He also wrote letters that summarized his concerns. I believe the proposed plant will result in a decrease in property values and an increase in pollution. Marv said there was going to be a dust problem. Meteorological impacts to the town, especially schools and churches. He said there was going to be a noise be problem. Because he said Granby there was going to be a uh, lighting problem. Is this what the residents of Granby want to look at for the next 20 or even 50 years? I hope not. So in a way, he was the campaigning for you know, almost environmental to be removed. quality of life issues. Please help to defeat this proposal by writing more letters to your town trustees. Marvin Hemeyer, Granby and Grand Lake. If he would bring in a letter, I would want to work on it with him. If I had to make changes, I would want to explain it to him and show him what I was doing, rather than he'd suddenly be surprised if the letter doesn't come back the way he wants it. We did that several times. 
Not really, because I didn't know Marv hated my guts. This newspaper guy, Patrick Brower, big liberal army brat, has had everything in his life given to him, but he knows how to abuse the power of the pen. I considered it sort of a professional slash, it's just a professional relationship between us. I'm going to take a break here. I guess I'm not going to take a break. Uh, I'll lose my train of thought. Anyway, this Patrick Brower, I mean, he's a pothead. Uh, of course, you can't tell anybody that. Uh, Marv tried to sell it as, oh, this is bad for the town of Granby, you know. And it was. But Marv didn't give a shit about that. He just did not like Cody Dochev. It was bad bluff. You know, it was nothing but a Hatfield and McCoy feud. Now, Cody Dochev owns a beautiful piece of property out on that Williams Fork Road. He could have put that batch plant out there and no one would have ever saw it. But Cody Dochev didn't like Marv either. And, you know, it makes more sense. You know, he's closer to town. He doesn't have to drive his trucks, burning up gas. But I'm sure in the back of Mr. Dochev's mind, he's like, I'm going to fuck Marv. I'm sure that's how it went. Marv kept thinking that the town was, you know, always in the pocket of the Dochevs and that there was some sort of collusion going on in the background and that, you know, the town was just going to say yes, 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 yes. And, but th- they didn't do that. The, the town attorney wouldn't let them do it, and they did everything according to the book so that it was legal. The town had a hard-on for Marv Hemeyer. They didn't stop and think. Marv didn't have any malice towards us. No. They kept it in their hardened hearts and said, we'll get him. For 10 years, the people in the town of Granby did not want me there. And the fact that I was making good money by the 99 within, you know, eight, seven years after I, six years after I started that business, that I was making a pretty good income, I'm sure made them very jealous. I'm sure everything about me made them jealous. I'm sorry that they felt that way. That is a bad way to feel. Remind me, why did Hemeyer go after you guys so aggressively? Because our dad was on the town Because board. our dad was on the town council. Then we owned the land right next to his down there. Yeah. Yeah, he made a comment. Was that in the paper one time? Yeah, we was a Dochef Thompson money machine. Money machine that they weren't going to stop. It was yeah. like we was all out to get him. Yeah. I had no beef with the guy whatsoever. Or do you ever talk to the man? Nobody ever gave me static about running his business down there. Nope. Marver, a year earlier, threatened us. The Thompson brothers were down below my house here in Grand Lake. One day... We was up pulling up on the job one morning, getting warm our equipment up. I drove up to him and had a few words with him. Said, come here, man, I want to talk to you guys. Basically what I told him was that your family made some decisions that financially affected my life for the rest of my life. And I says, well, I says, I'm going to collect. And that's all he said and drove off. He had one thing to say. He screamed it at me as I'm about five truck lengths away. He screamed, you can suck my dick. And I stopped the truck and I laughed out loud and I told him, I says, that will never happen. Two years, he was battling the town of Granby. And like I said, I took Marv fishing, hunting. Well, I took him down to Dolphin Island, Alabama, and we went deep sea fishing. 
flew in from Denver to Atlanta, and we rented a car on the car ride mark. You know, he complained the whole time about the town of Granby. I took old Al Butts, the antler craft man, he came with us. And he even said during that vacation, he's like, Ian and he had never met Marv. He's like, golly, you know, we're on vacation and all this guy does is bitch about the town of Granby and Cody Dochef. And he really, even on vacation, you know, you could feel the animosity in Marv building up. We caught some good fish. Now Marv did get seasick as a dog every day. He would get back to shore and he'd kiss the shore. But we're sitting in the Gulf of Mexico and Marv goes, I'm just gonna bulldoze the whole fucking town. Marv held a grudge. I told him not to do anything. He didn't listen to me. We'd be on a snowmobile trip or something like that, and it would just come up, and he'd be mouthing off, and I'd say, Marv, let it go. The good old boys aren't going to let you get around them. And he always said, I don't talk bullshit. If I'm going to do it, I'm doing it. We almost got into fistfights because he didn't understand my thinking. There's just certain things you can't fight. So don't even attempt it. You just got to live with it and let Carmen take care of it. And it will. It might take it forever, but Carmen will take care of your problems, most of them. Uh, I think it was really over by 2001. That's when the town finally gave the final approval for the batch plant, and uh, they could go ahead and build it. Marv saw me as the lead guy, if you will, because I'm the one that read the official thing into the records. And of course we passed it and the batch plant came to be. And he didn't come into the story. Yeah, that was it. After he that, after that, that he didn't do business, he, didn't yeah, speak to us downtown. He wouldn't, yeah. If he saw me, he, you know, I'm a scoundrel. And at that point, there were other fights with Marv. There were junk complaints made and he'd say, no, that's not junk because that's a 350 Chevrolet block that they only made from this year to this year or whatever. So it's not junk. It's all junk. This is incredibly mundane stuff, but they put a water and sewer line into the batch plant that was close enough now to Marv's property that Marv could be compelled to hook onto it. Under state law, if you're within 400 feet of a sewer line, you have to connect to the sewer line. Well, when this sewer line finally came in close enough, they said, you got to hook on. Or we're going to shut you down. Had to pay a fine, had to agree not to use the property. So Marv says, fine, I'm just going to go out of business. But then he leased the property, and the town got mad at him again. Fined him like $3,700. He had to pay a fine. He got into a little bit of a dispute with the town clerk over the way he wrote his check. He came into my office to change out a check he wrote, but he had written some stuff on, I don't know if it was barbarians or whatever. Down below he put... Blood-sucking bastards or blood-suckers, something in the remit. Cowards and liars department is what it said. And the bank refused to pass the check. So I got turned back, and then the town said, well, you haven't paid your fine, so now we're going to throw you in jail for contempt of court. The bank said, oh, no, we didn't do that because the remitter, we did that because it said $3,700, and that's not correct. It has saved $3,700. Then at that point, he closes everything down, and he sells the property for about $400,000. I had to pay taxes on it, which I did. 
But I, I stuck, you know, $360,000 in my pocket. I didn't stick it in my pocket. I gave it away. You know, it's gone because now money means nothing to me. I've given my house away. My snowmobiles, I've given those away this year. Everything is gone. And you know, I, I've fought this for years now. I, I mean, I wept at times trying to understand why this was happening to me. And to do what I had to do to make these people listen was just above me. And when I realized that one day when I was sitting in the hot tub, and I mean I was, I was weeping, a peace came over me that has only come over me a few times before in my life, where I knew that what I was doing was tough, but it was the right thing, and that it was above me. It wasn't me. I was doing this because God wanted me to do it. I said, why did you ask me to do this? Is that why I've never been married, so I didn't have a family? Is that why I've always been successful, so that I would realize my reward before doing this task? I believe so. And I'm carrying the cross willingly now. At first, I fought it. But it has to be done. And the world will write stories about how wrong I am and everything. And without a doubt, I wish it could be done a different way. But there is no way to make this right. So, you know, we're coming up on that day when I'm going to do what I have to do. Um, That's just the way it is. Nine one one. What is your emergency? Uh, this is Mountain Park Concrete, and we need a uh, the sheriff's department and possibly an ambulance. Okay, what's going on? It's like a bulldozer went crazy or something. Response to Mountain Park's Concrete. I took that call about 1.30 that afternoon. 21 copy, about 30 seconds out. Pretty surprising scene upon arrival. And that bulldozer was tearing down that building. Pretty much eating away on the side of the building to our left here. This is a bad situation, guys. He's armored. We might have fought too. I radioed to our dispatch to start sending people. We have an the owner of the concrete plant came in one of those uh, front end loaders that we saw and he started striking the side of this bulldozer. Well, you got to protect your building. You know, that's like the act of war. He's destroying what I worked for all my life. I spun him around a little bit with the loader, but I had my bucket up in the area because they told me to hit him high, so I rocked him. Well, I hit him so hard and I hit my head on the windshield and I guess that's the last I knew what happened right there at that moment. That's when the first uh, gunfire occurred. We had automatic weapon fire coming from the bulldozer. We had shots fired. When I came out of it about 30 seconds later, they said, he was shooting at the loader and I was laying over the steering wheel. 
So I just backed out. And one deputy, he slapped me around a little bit. He said, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I just wouldn't quit. I tried getting up on the dozer on the back end of it, and I couldn't. He had it all greased up with uh, white grease or Vaseline. It was all greased up. I kept sliding off of it. What was I going to do when I got up on top? I don't know. There was deputies and state patrols and the Forest Service and a Park Service guy. Everybody down here with rifles and guns. I don't know how many thousands of rounds out they fired. He was down here for 45 minutes. When he finally left, there was a police car in his way, and uh, he literally drove over the top of that police car and uh, started towards the town of Granby. My bakery overlooked Main Street Granby. And I had beautiful girls selling my pastry, and I normally being back in the kitchen. I had a, a, a young lady work for me named Sheila Rigby. The phone rings. Miss Sheila answered the phone, and it was her mom on the phone. And she said, Hey, there's this armored vehicle driving up the street. You need to get those kids out of that bakery. And you could hear in her voice, she was not kidding. Now, my lovely daughters and my lovely wife at the time had gone to Denver that day. So my family was safe. So I took my employees to the basement of my house, which was right behind the bakery, took an old pickup truck I had and parked it in the middle of the street, like T-bone the street. So whoever was coming up was either going to have to slow down or go around my truck. Grabbed my 300 Winchester Magnum, hunkered down behind my wood pile and waited. And about two minutes went by and I see this police officer running down the street. Then I see a cop car hauling rear down the street. Am I allowed to swear? (laughs) Hauling ass down the street. (laughs) I'm like, what is going on? And I'm sitting on my wood pile and all of a sudden the wood on my wood pile started to shake. And this thing that came into my scope's view, it was a work of art. There was no place you could put a bullet. Describe it for us because when, when someone says bulldozer to us, you see a large machine with a... Right, think of the biggest bulldozer you ever seen in your life with the blade on the front completely covered up with steel. It's a Komatsu D355 bulldozer. I can see it now. You know what? It looks like a locomotive. He's got so much stuff on it. A layer of steel, four to six inches of concrete, and another layer of steel. He's got a stack on the front for the exhaust to come out. He had a hatch built into it. He had spots where he put cameras so he could observe things remotely without having to expose himself to any gunfire from the outside. He's got gun turrets. He's even got the tracks covered up. He put in a special cooling system to keep the engine cool because he knew it would be running hot. I mean, he did a lot of intensive stuff. I looked at it in my scope. I left my gun on the wood pile and I ran down behind my house. And old Marv comes up, and I still didn't know it was Marv at the time, 
It comes up to my white truck, goes around it, right up on the curb in front of my bakery, goes around my bakery and heads on down the street. The next building is the Sky High News, which was our local newspaper. It was a normal work day for me. Suddenly we got a phone call around, uh, I think it was 2.30. They told us to evacuate our office. I went out and looked down Main Street, and then I saw the killdozer pull onto Highway 40, four blocks away. How fast was it moving? Three miles an hour. There were police cars on each side of it, and there were sheriff's deputies kind of trotting along with firearms. I snapped a few photos. It looked kind of like a Darth Vader-ish behemoth uh, from some old science fiction movie, you know. Went back in and just thought I would watch it trundle by on the highway. Just a few minutes later, took a sharp turn and smashed into the building. The whole building collapsed right around us and we ran out the back. If I tripped, I'd be dead right now. But I didn't trip, so. What he did is he'd go in about six feet and then back out, go over a few feet, then go back in and just very methodically, you know, knock down all the outside walls of the building. And somebody said, you better get going because he's going further east toward your house. And my wife was pregnant and she had our youngest child there. So I ran over across the railroad tracks and got to a little sort of industrial area. And there was a gun truck. I said, help, give me a ride home. And he said, sure. And at that point, the radio was doing a blow-by-blow description of it. Take us through it chronologically so people get a sense. I know it all started about 3 o'clock this afternoon. And one of the people they had on the radio was a a woman who knew Marv. We understand that you are a friend, perhaps, of the man who is inside that bulldozer. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Tell me about this vehicle. Did he actually say he was going to take a bulldozer and armor it? Well, he didn't say he was going to armor it. He said, I'm going to take a bulldozer and pay them back. And she was saying things like, oh, he wouldn't hurt a flea. Of course, I thought that he was just kidding. I had no idea that... He would only hurt people who hurt him. Because several other buildings that were taken out had to do with this land transaction. He's only trying to hurt their property, not try to hurt the people. The people that caused him harm. It was very strange. And so then when Marv was trying to develop the property, would you call 887-3710? That's the Thompson residence. We think the bulldozer's headed there. We need to have everybody evacuated out of the Thompson's residence. Turned over here, and there was a small house. It was occupied by a very elderly lady who had a family member who was on the Granby Town Board. In Hemeyer's mind, that was a target. So we raced home called ahead and told my mom to get out of the house. She thought I was joking with her. I said, just get in the car and just get out of town. I said, he's gone nuts. He hit the back of the house, then he went around the front of the street and came in and did the front side. Hit the front of the house twice. He might have ran right through the house and completely destroyed it. Nothing left to the house at all. You just watched. Nothing you do. Nothing you could do. You know, you got kind of stay away. You might get, get shot and killed. So, you know, what do you do? firing some shots. There goes another shot. They got a really big, high-powered rifle they're trying to pierce the metal with. Exactly. Are you across the street? Yeah, I'm like a half a block away. At this time, uh, we had called the Road and Bridge Department to see if they had any big equipment we could use to combat this dozer. We need something of equal or bigger size. Yeah, we got a scraper at the county shops, and I got one down here if you want to try to box him in. 
That earth mover came down and contested the dozer right on this hill. It's a great big piece of heavy equipment that's used to scrape up dirt and move it from one place to another. So as best as you can tell, police have him surrounded and stopped at the moment. And Marv won that fight. He pushed that thing around like a like a toy, tinker toy. Yeah. Just pushed it out of the way and continued back up into town. I sent my employees home and I, I went out the front. I grabbed my work truck and Rhonda said, where are we going? And I wanted our family together. Then we went up to um, Silver Creek, up to a house that's kind of secluded. And on the way out there, we turned on the radio. We understand some of the targets. Um, it appears that he has specific targets. It's not yeah, just building right after the next I told Rhonda, I said, you know, we're on that list. And she said, yeah, I know. And she said, do we have insurance? <laughs> and I said, yeah, we so got did insurance. You pay, did you pay the insurance? <laughs> did you pay the insurance? So yeah, the insurance is paid. So. And so by the time that we got to the house. By then, Channel 4 had gotten up here with their helicopter. You know, airing it live. He is just again headed westbound into the downtown area. He doesn't stop for light poles. He doesn't stop for buildings. The dozer came up here, and then where Gamble's hardware was right here. Right when he's out there, you see a big plume of steam. The, the dozer wasn't operating at, at full power. You can see now that long stream of, of wet pavement there. That's the radiator apparently took out the hose or some other part of a radiator. That's when the main coolant line burst. He's going to turn around here and make one last stand and, and show You can see the bulldozer heading into our building. While the radiator's smoking, while he has any power left, he's going to attack that Gamble's appliance store. And the front of our store was gone and everybody could see just right through the store. It was unbelievable. Casey about went to the ground. It was, it was bad. The dozer got hung up, a uh, high centered, if you would. Uh, right now, the dozer isn't gambled, or what used to be gambled. It was never considered by law enforcement to all of a sudden treat this as a benign situation. You kind of wonder what Act Two is going to look like. We were definitely set up and uh, prepared for a fight. We're going to need crime scene assistance. And, and uh, eventually the machine shut completely off. After a period of time, one of the law enforcement officers uh, said he thought he heard uh, some, some type of a louder noise from the machine itself. That was his suicide shot. The day that he did it, I was driving back with my two little kids. I'm a single mom. We went up above on the hill that was right above where Gambles was and where he was stuck. In Denver or something, they'd have it all blocked off and stuff, but around here, they don't really do that. And so we were right there, and we were looking down on it. And my kids were asking me about it, and I said, no, it's not Marv. It can't be Marv. We know Marv. And then they wanted to know, you know, little minds. They wanted to know what happened to him. And they were asking me all these questions. Well, what's going on? Is he in there? Is he, are they going to come and shoot him? Are they going to, what are they going to do? And I just, well, I obviously didn't know. So I just told them I don't know. But 
You know, I had lots of questions I couldn't answer. As soon as I got off work, I went over to Granby, and I was standing up on top of the hill right above Gamble's, right behind the county building, and started doing the blasting to try to blow the door off of it. And they kept going and doing it. When they said, well, he didn't take his own life in there, there's no way he's going to get through this. That was just, I mean, that was just, it was just ridiculous, I guess, in some respects, that they would still continue to on that route. I mean, they knew he couldn't move. The dozer wasn't going anywhere. We all know he shot himself in there anyhow, but that was pretty somber, sad moment up there, standing up on top of the hill, looking down. Smart man, he wasted. That's the way I look at it, he just wasted, you know. I was the one that helped spread his ashes. That was terrible. That was my hardest day in my life recently. Yeah, I mean, that was my best friend, man. We all met at uh, Elk Creek Campground and uh, went on this ride. There were, I mean, there must've been 30 or 40 people on this ride. There was a turnout that wouldn't quit. That's what I'm saying. There was plenty of people in this town that loved Marv and knew that what Marv was. He'd help you out, help you do anything. But we took him up on Gravel Mountain, had a big fire, and spread his ashes up there where he liked to ride. I forget who spoke. Somebody, maybe it was his brother. His brother showed up. And it was a spitting image of Marv, and I just lost it. And we all took our handfuls of ashes and walked over to this other cliff and uh, had something to say and threw it off the edge of the mountain up there. And, uh, yeah, it was a hard day. People were taking the ashes and rubbing them on their faces and on their coats so he'd be with them whenever they were riding. It was a little different. I'd never felt human ashes <laughs> they're weird I tell you what under your fingernails and stuff it is something else but uh I'll never forget that what did you say to him when you spread the ashes uh, thank you for everything you've done for me because still a lot of my best friends are from our group so he's a pretty cool dude for sure can't believe I'm crying so much over it, <laughs> man, and a while ago. <laughs> so, yeah, he was a pretty good guy. Two and a half hours, 13 buildings, six or seven cars or trucks, trees, lampposts, two scrapers. So he caused a lot of damage. <laughs> yeah, I think it's about $10 million. I knew that something bad had happened, but you, I was in shock. I didn't realize how much that this would totally change our lives and the lives of our children. The thing of it is, is everybody else that got bulldozed were able to get up and, and keep running. And we were just had. I mean, it was gone. We were simply uninsured, under, underinsured. underinsured. We kept running numbers and running numbers, and it doesn't matter if you're a dollar short or a million dollars short. If you're short, you're short. We didn't, didn't feel like we could rebuild. 
Was it the next day that they took the bulldozer out of the building? Mm-hmm. The whole town had come out to see the removal of this bulldozer. The the tank felt evil. It it emitted to me an energy, and uh, I mean I wanted to touch it to see if it was even real, but I, I didn't even want to get that close to it. A monster machine wreaks havoc. A lot of people know about this event. All the major networks, all the major newspapers were calling up. He's encased it in a concrete shell and an inch of double-plated steel. People knew there was this rampage. It was kind of wild and crazy, and it got everybody's attention. It was front-page news for two days, exactly. But then, something no one expects. But then it all stopped because Ronald Reagan died that Saturday. The Cold War crusader dies at 93. He asked the nation to find within itself we, the people, the greatness that he considered his birthright. We, the people, are the driver. The government is the car. The nation prepares to honor and remember the 40th president of the United States of America. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Ronald Reagan died, and then suddenly it wasn't on the front page anymore. And there was minimal follow-up to kind of go into, well, what really happened? Granby, Colorado. People, all they knew that this wild guy went crazy in a bulldozer. It sounded kind of fun and kind of crazy. This guy must have watched too many World War II movies. Look at this. Who's going to tell me? Oh, the guy just went crazy and damaged some buildings. Isn't that clever and cute? You know, imagine him getting up that morning. Go get him. Go get him. Within three days after the event, suddenly people thought it was a funny, hilarious thing happened decided to call it the killdozer. A really hack B-level movie that came out in the early 70s called Killdozer. Killdozer. Two men then. The survivors watch an unmanned bulldozer continue its rampage. And it was about, you know, a dozer that got possessed with the spirit of Martians or something and it killed people. And that's where the name Killdozer came from. And it just took off. It kind of started to get its own reality was invented online. The narrative got away from us right away. Local resident and former muffler shop owner Marvin Heemeyer had finally had enough of being pushed around. The zoning board and the local politicians were nothing but slobbering corrupt monkeys doing the bidding of selfish and greedy business. He bought a massive bulldozer and spent the next year and a half turning this gigantic piece of construction equipment into the most insanely fucking awesome vehicle ever constructed by human hands. He may have gone too far, but the root cause is the unfairness of what he was dealing with. He stood up for what he believed was right and paid for it with his life. If ever you a citizen were like Heemeyer, our tyrannical government wouldn't stand a chance. We will reclaim this country at all costs. Reclaim the sacred soil that our forefathers conquered, settled, built, died for. Marvin Heemeyer believed that freedom was a cause still worth fighting for. All the time there were letters coming in saying Marv was a good guy or we liked him or... So it wasn't just out-of-towners and people reading stuff on the internet. It was also... Oh, it was locals. This is a guy in Winter Park. Uh, He says... uh, I have been following your pieces for the last four years, and I did not agree with some of it. But now you are wrong in regards to Marv Hemeyer. I think Marv deserves a medal. You have to change your government. 
people think about the people that wouldn't have happened if you did it before. I'm sorry about your building, but I think you should think more about the people you serve. Think more democratic. Bren Lindau of Winter Park. There were many letters in that vein. People will say, why did he do that? He had such a good life. He had a better life than me anyway. Well, I think there's something you should learn here. When you visit evil upon someone, be assured it will revisit you. And that is what is happening. It is a good thing. Because I think the community of Grandview will be stronger. I think that they will understand after years, if they ever hear this tape, if they ever hear the truth. The truth in this case is boring. It's a lot more exciting to say, yeah, government wronged this poor struggling businessman. They were indifferent to the concerns of Marv Hemeyer and that's what government gets for being so indifferent. This is a very common narrative in America. It exists in superhero myths. Cowboy stories were fighting back against the corrupt sheriff in the corrupt town. It's a sort of vigilante getting back at corrupt government that's oppressing mankind. And there's tons of it out there. I have good friends who to this day think that the World Trade Center was actually explosions that took place inside the building. And that it was, I mean, that's a major conspiracy out there. You can go online and there are still people out there telling you that Newtown never happened. It is a fake. It was the government hired actors to go in there and they did it all to make guns look bad. And that for that reason, you know, government is out to get us. They're all a bunch of liars, you know, and a lot of people believe it. Do you think Marv uh, won? Yes, I do. In killing himself, he was able to avoid any sort of public examination of what he had done. Let's say he had not killed himself and they captured him and he had to go to trial. Well, going to court and being tried on his charges would have allowed for a real honest to God public airing of what had happened. Because he killed himself, we didn't have that opportunity. I think Marv won. I think he's totally justified in what he did. Nobody got hurt except for one officer who stuck his head in a bank and a brick fell and hit him in the head. I mean, that's his own fault. You know, I wish more people could do that anymore and not the way he did it, but the government is not always great to deal with, not always fair to deal with. You know, they expect you to do things in, on short notice, but they can take your property, your houses, put you in jail, all that kind of stuff. You can't stand up against them anymore in today's society. You just have to go with what they tell you to do, pretty much. I think it's awesome that he stood up against the government. I don't think anybody supported his idea of what to do. We understand why he did it. That's about all we can do. He was going to take a stand against it. But I told him, you can't. You can't fight the government. I don't care who you are. Donald Trump would have trouble fighting the government. You can't fight government. You got to get that through your head. But I will say, he went out of his way not to hurt anybody. He went way out of his way not to hurt anybody. He could have just crushed people with that thing, and he, he didn't. He chose not to. They weren't the people he was after. He was only focused on the people that did him wrong. He didn't want to hurt anybody. He just wanted to get their attention, the world's attention of what's going on in this county, but it, it didn't work. So 
It was all for naught. The narrative started right away that, oh, he wasn't trying to hurt anybody. But when you openly shoot at somebody with a firearm, you're trying to kill them. You know, if there were warning shots, why didn't he just shoot in the air? If I'd fallen, he didn't know if I wasn't sitting at a desk in that building. He could have easily run me over and killed me. So we ran a story in the paper right away that talked about all the ways in which Marv clearly had acted extremely aggressively. He had three rifles mounted into the shell of the cab. And then inside he had two or three handguns. A 50 caliber rifle pointing out the back. He had a 30 caliber rifle pointing out the front. I just knew right then instinctively that it was going to be sort of a struggle for some people to accept that Marv was definitely in the wrong, not doing the right thing, and that from what I could see, he didn't care if he killed anybody or not. This will be a debate that will go on forever, but I, I don't think Marv cared at all if he hurt anybody. Everyone needs a social hero. When all said and done, all we have is stories. And Marv's story is he did that whole thing and he didn't hurt anybody. But sometimes we get lucky. And I believe Marv got lucky. Do you think there was anything shady about the way the town did it? Well, if you were Marv, it was shady. If you were Cody Dochef, the sun was shining on you. There's always a winner. There's always a loser. Everyone has been wronged, not by the government, but everyone feels wronged in life. But not everyone has the balls to build a tank and bulldoze the town they live in. So, and that's where the hero aspect comes in from it because Marv actually did it. But did he do it for the right reasons? No. And I, you know, I was a good friend of Marv's, but no, Marv did not do that for the right reasons. Marv did that as a blood feud. You know, as a kid, you play sports and some people lose better than other people. Marv didn't lose well. But he had the means and the skill to kick some ass. And that's what he did, you know. But that's not saying it was the right thing to do. I truly believe that there's very, very few things that are ever completely one-sided. Very few things that are completely right and completely wrong. I don't know that you can say any one person is to blame. Maybe some people are wrong in to the extent they did things, obviously. But no one's completely right or completely wrong. The economy set things up to begin with. People trying to make a living, you know, make a batch plant, do a business. Cody didn't do anything illegal. But we're not in a vacuum. That's why we have zoning laws is you're always going to affect your neighbor no matter what. Well, maybe your neighbor's not willing to accept that. Maybe your neighbor is so extreme he's willing to do beyond the pale to deal with it. Ultimately, Marv wasn't injured as badly as what he thought. He could have left. He had close to a million dollars. He could have left, lived a good life. Conversely, the town is, okay, hooking onto the sewer, etc., Ultimately, looking back, was it worth it? Obviously not. You know, just because you have the power doesn't mean you have to use it. Just because you feel slighted doesn't mean you have to do it. Nothing ever happens for a single reason. 
We started the story off, we teach history wrong in high school. This is history. But it seems like this has to happen again and again and again in human nature that that we kill each other so that the next generation looks at things differently who where they, where they will open their mind and be open to other people's ideas it's it's a it's a cycle Ben McClelland is an attorney living in Granby and handled Marvin Hemeyer's estate after he died. Oftentimes, the problem is that we want to look at things and we look at them too close. Cody Docheff is still the owner of Mountain Park Concrete. That's like the act of war. He's destroying what I work for. Ian Doherty ran Ian's Mountain Bakery in downtown Granby. I'm not very good at many things. I can cook and I'm lucky at hunting and fishing. Lori Crane owned the snowmobile dealership in Grand Lake. It takes a lot to get a snowmobile unstuck. Matthew Reed and Stu Spencer were members of Marv's Snowmobile Club. Kind of tried to date my mom, actually. Just a regular old hard-working dude, you know. Patrick Brower is the former editor-in-chief of the Sky High News and has written a book called Killdozer, the true story of the Colorado bulldozer rampage. I considered it sort of a professional slash it's just a professional relationship between us. Gary and Larry Thompson are still the owners of Thompson & Sons Excavating. Nothing you do. Nothing you could do. Casey and Rhonda Farrell still run a smaller version of Gamble's Hardware Shop. She said, do we have insurance? Did you pay the insurance? <laughs> Did you pay the insurance? <laughs> said, yeah, the insurance is paid. Jim Crocker was the first responder during the rampage. He's now chief of police of Granby. Not not a routine call at this point at all. Deb Hess was the town clerk for Granby. But he had written some stuff on, I don't know if it was barbarians or whatever. Marvin Hemeyer ran a muffler shop in Granby and lived the last 10 years of his life in Grand Lake, Colorado. So anyway, this tape's probably got a lot of emotion in it. And uh, anybody listening to it, you know, you need to realize that. And just take it from there. You know. Anyway, hey, I hope you all have a great time, a good life. I've had a great life. And uh, it's Saturday morning, uh, the 22nd of May, 2004. And I'm going to put this tape and tape recorder in a plastic bag and somebody else can try to figure it out. We'll see you later. That's it for Love and Radio. This episode was produced by Stephen Jackson and Jesse Carrier. Additional interview footage was provided by Charles Agar. 
Additional voices by Nate Dufour, Chris Milk, Rich Grissett, Matt Flowers, Robert Kapadoff, Joe Maines, Anna Whittle, Dominic Barrett, and Kevin Gallagher. Special thanks to the staff of the Granby Chamber of Commerce, Justin Grotlishen, and the regulars at Poncho and Lefties. Love and Radio is a production of Radiotopia, whose executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Radiotopia's founding sponsor is the Knight Foundation, and made possible through the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. Be sure to check out the artwork for today's episode on our website. It's loveandradio.org, as well as the images from all the archives. We've been super lucky to work with some incredibly talented visual artists the last couple of seasons, so check them out. Thanks for listening.